Let me ask a question this morning, um, and I don't want you to answer it out loud, okay? You can, I guess, but it might be awkward for all of us. Uh, why are you here today? Why are we gathered here today? Why did you get out of bed this morning and not go to brunch, but rather, rather come to here? Come here. Um, why did you um, uh, rise whenever you rose and poured coffee whenever you poured coffee maybe and made your way here to this gathering this morning? Um, why did you do that? Do we even think about it really when we do it? Some of us, we've been doing it for years. 30, 40, 50, 60 years. It's just regular habit, right? And a good habit, by the way. Not a habit I'm discouraging. Um, a habit we want to encourage. Um, but it's habit after a while, right? And we sometimes we go through it and why do we do it? Why are we here? Why did we come this morning? Why do you sit where you sit? Why did we do what we did this morning when we sang the songs we sang and we greeted one another and we prayed and, and now I stand up and I open the same book every week, right? 52 weeks, is that right? 52 weeks, 53 weeks, sleep year, right? Um, a year. Why do we do that? Uh, we don't really think about it. It's just kind of become automatic. And I would say, actually, there's actually several reasons why people may do that. We know ultimately we do that because this is a time that we gather together and worship, right? And that is the theme of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and it is particularly aimed at when we come together to worship. You know, you may have came this morning simply as an observer, right? Just to observe, kind of the uh, flower on the wall, kind of trying to blend in, hoping nobody points you out type thing. We've been there, done that, right? And so you're just here to observe, just checking things out. You may not even be a Christian this morning. You could just be curious about the Christian faith. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you just come out of habit. Maybe you've always been coming. Maybe you claim to be a Christian and deep down you know you're not. And you're just here observing this morning. Maybe you're here observing because you're kind of, you're looking for a church home or thinking about getting involved in a church, right? So we have observers here this morning and we welcome you and glad you're, glad you're with us. We also have maybe some consumers here this morning, right? Consumers kind of have the mindset of we're looking to see what's in it for me today, right? We are a very consumeristic culture. It's actually just kind of natural. We're just natural shoppers now. We, 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 we've become so consumeristic that now we don't even need to go to the stores to consume. The stores have come to us, right? And so I can lay in bed at night or get up in the morning and reach over and grab my phone and hit the Amazon button and I can have anything in the world just about at my doorstep within 48 hours, some things within 24. Some things within like 12. It's crazy, right? We are consumer driven. So it's natural that when we come to church, many times we come with a consumer mindset. In a consumer mindset, we're raising way in positives and negatives and we're looking for the best product. The best worship product, the best preaching product, the best hospitality and friendliness product. And so we're looking to, to have certain needs met and so we're shopping, so to speak. And so maybe you come this morning as a consumer to see what's in it for you. Or maybe you come this morning as a critic. We all have a critical nature about us to some degree or another, right? And so we're evaluating and we're scoring. We live in a culture of critics, right? That's why we have Yelp and that's why we have Google reviews. So you can go on there and you can say, I hated that restaurant, right? I waited two hours or whatever, you know, and you can give one and a half star or one star. You can stay at a hotel and the it, the, it was dirty. There, It wasn't vacuumed properly. The bed wasn't made, whatever. One star or five stars, you know, and we're all experts, right? We're all expert uh, restaurants owners and we're all expert chefs and all restaurant uh, re uh, expert restaurant uh, and hotel operators because um, we're critics we're professional critics movies whatever we rate we score two stars three stars four stars uh, 
And so maybe this morning we bring that spirit with us sometimes when we come in together with worship and we kind of become critics. And so we're scoring everything. How was the music? How was the sermon? How was the people? Were they friendly enough to me? Who spoke to me today and who didn't speak to me today? And so we get very critical. And I just want to propose to you this morning that whilst our natural tendencies sometimes are to simply observe or to be consumeristic or to be critical, I'm not here to look down my nose at you this morning. I'm here to say that we all have a natural tendency to gravitate towards that. That I'm here to tell you this morning that the Lord wants you to be simply this, a worshiper this morning. And in our day, of your way right away and Yelp and Google and all those things, it's easy to get distracted from that and forget that we're actually in a worship service. That we've set aside this hour, hour and 15 minutes for one specific reason and that is to worship. And in this time, we want non-Christians to come. We do. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, we welcome you. We thank God you're here because we want you to experience Christian worship. And by the way, they should experience Christian worship when they're here. We want them to see that and to taste and see that the Lord is good and experience Christian hospitality and be exposed to the good news about Jesus. And and if you're a Christian, we want you to worship while you're here today. Not simply observe, not simply be a critic, or not simply consume, but to worship and to engage in singing songs together. Because in our worship, yes, we the Bible teaches us we build one another up, we edify, and at the same time we're here to mainly glorify God. But as we do that, as we gather together, and as we do that, we build one another up as well. But in my lifetime, and maybe you can admit this as well, I'm going to do a little confession today, I've been consumeristic at times with church. I've simply observed many times in church, and I've been critical at church, whether in my spirit or with my mouth. And I've likely slept in worship at times. I've played games during worship at times. I've daydreamed in worship at times. I've done many things in worship besides worship. And I'm the preacher this morning. So if I've done that, I'm just going to assume that maybe you've done some of these things as well. And maybe you find yourself being more and more consumeristic and critical or simply observing. And the truth is, this morning, we've all done this because we're sinners, right? And so even our worship many times is flawed. But there's a right way and a wrong way to worship this morning, and that's what I want to drive home. Was Before we even read this text, I want us to get that. The writer of Ecclesiastes gets that. That it's possible for us to gather together corporately and completely miss the point or completely mess things up. It's possible to come together and worship and just not worship or to come together and worship and worship wrongly. It's possible this morning to worship as a fool. That's what he's going to warn us against today. Foolish worship. Foolish babbling before the Lord. Foolish playing games before God. Foolish worship is what we want to avoid this morning. We have not come this morning to simply gaze at a stage or look at who's on stage singing or teaching or whatever. We have come ultimately to gaze at the Lord Jesus through His Word and to behold Him more clearly and to be driven to worship, right? And so when we leave here today and we're thinking we want to be less critical and less consumeristic and less just observant and our hearts filled and our hearts worshiping with the God that we have beheld during our time together. And so that's what he's going to talk to us about today is the importance of this weight of worship, of coming together, and the weight of the importance of why we're here in avoiding a foolishness about our worship. So look with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And before I read these seven verses, I want to pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand his word. Father, we're so grateful this morning for the word of God and for these verses that you have given us in Ecclesiastes about worship. Help us to understand them. 
Thank you so much that I've already had the privilege this week of, of studying this passage. And I pray right now as we share it together, sort of sharing a meal together here around your word, that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and help us to understand and apply your truth. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it is on the screen this morning. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Think about that for a second. That it's possible to go to God and worship and actually do evil in the process. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. There's that word again we see throughout Ecclesiastes. But God is the one you must fear. Fear. And he talks about the fear of God throughout Ecclesiastes because at the end of the day, it's the main theme of the book that we move towards in chapter 12. This passage fits very well with the rest of the Bible. If you've never read it before, and if you're not super familiar with the Bible, and you come to a passage like this, it might seem a little bit like, whoa, I thought Jesus was my homeboy. Doesn't sound like it when I read verses 1-7. through He just called me like uh, a fool, possibly, in my worship. Right? It's a pretty harsh text in kind of a polite way. Right? Uh, the prophets, many times in the Old Testament, aren't as polite uh, when they rebuke worship. Uh, they're much more direct. Right? You kind of leave with a bloody nose, you feel like, after you've read some of their stuff in Malachi or Isaiah and some of these places. But this is nice and neat and just kind of a very subtle way of saying worship can be wrong. It can be done wrong. But it fits with the theme of the Bible that worship is a very serious matter. Let me give you some examples. The very first really picture of worship we get in all of the Bibles in Genesis chapter 4 when the very first offspring of the very first humans, Cain and Abel, come to worship the Lord. And they both bring an offering to the Lord, but one is rejected, that would be Cain, and one is accepted, and that would be Abel. And so from the very beginning, with the very first worship act, we learn worship can be acceptable or unacceptable. It can be wise or it can be foolish. It can be right or it can be wrong, and it, but it's definitely a serious matter because we know Cain ultimately was driven out, was marked, became, it became so discouraged from being rejected in his worship that he murdered his brother. I mean, it was just a, a very uh, serious matter that takes place when people worship the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 22, we get the story of Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to fulfill through his lineage that he would become the father of many nations. And that, that promise was held, was, was wrapped up in this beautiful little boy named Isaac, right? And of course, we actually believe it's very possible that Isaac could have been a little older by the time that this story comes about. But it, it came a point where God actually told Abraham to take Isaac and offer him up on the altar to sacrifice him. 
Not because God was actually going to let him do that, we find out, but because God was after the heart of Abraham. God wanted Abraham to be completely yielded to him, that nothing was on the altar, that no idol, because it would be possible that this child that represented all the promises of God and all the good things God had done in Abraham's life would actually begin to replace God in Abraham's life. And so God challenges him there and challenges him to offer him up. And Abraham, he's testing Isaac and Abraham, excuse me, Abraham, and Abraham passes the test. Worship's a very serious matter to the Lord. You're dealing with God here. 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 8 through 15 is the story of Saul's unlawful sacrifice. Saul was the first king of Israel. David was king number two, but Saul was the first king and it did not go so well. Saul got to a place where he got fretful and wasn't willing to wait on the Lord uh, and, and the priest of the Lord before he made a sacrifice and he made what it was an unlawful sacrifice. He offered what he wasn't really in a position to offer to the Lord and ultimately lost his kingdom. Because of it. To David, a man who God says was after his heart. God takes our worship very seriously. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah was killed for simply touching the ark of the Lord. David was bringing the ark back to the city of David, to Jerusalem there. And they're celebrating and they're worshiping and they're dancing and they're singing and they're having this worshipful thing. And all of a sudden they, they hit a rough spot and the ark... Right, which symbolized the presence of God, is about to fall. And this guy reaches out and he takes a hold of it to make sure it don't fall. Seemed like a wise thing to do until God killed him. <laughs> it's a very serious matter we're dealing with when we worship the Lord. You say, well, that's all Old Testament, Josh, and we live in the New Testament. Well, how about Acts chapter 5? Have you ever read that one? When this guy named Ananias and Sapphira decide to come to church one day, he brings his wife to church, right? Cute little family. They're going into church, right? We drop the kids off at the preschool and we're going on up to worship. And they had decided they had brought an offering to the Lord that day. And they had went and they had sold all their land like a lot of other people in the church had been doing to show unusual generosity. And they decided they would bring it and offer it at the church. But the problem was that they weren't actually giving the whole offering, but they were letting everybody think they did, right? So it's like we sold our land for two hundred grand, but we're going to tell everybody we sold it for a hundred grand, and we're going to say, "Look, we sold it, and here's all the money, and then we're going to keep this hundred grand for ourselves." Problem wasn't with what they, the fact that they kept money. The fact was that they allowed people to think this other thing. They were being hypocritical. They were being false. They were being fake, and God struck them both dead. In the New Testament. So I give you all those examples to just say this. This passage is reminding us what the rest of the Bible is always reminding us. It's echoing for us that worship. When we come before the Lord and worship, it is a serious thing. And he's talking about worship because he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And that phrase is talking about the corporate worship act. In their context, it would have been the temple. In the Old Testament, there was a set place that they had built, and that was where you worshipped. No matter who you were, you made your way to the temple to worship the Lord if you could get there. And that's where they offered their sacrifices and all those sorts of things. That's where worship took place. That's where they brought their offering. But in the New Testament, things are different. The Bible teaches in the New Testament, the believer is the temple. We don't go to this particular building, this particular holy place. We, we are the temple of the Lord. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And when we come together, we are the house of God. So we're in the house of God this morning, but it's not bricks and mortar in the ceiling over your head and the walls to your left and to your right or the floor underneath your feet. This is the house of God this morning. 
So if we go meet out in the grass this morning, the house of God's out there. And if we go meet over by the lake, the house of God's over there. And so there's nothing really significant about the building this morning. The significance is in the gathering this morning. That's New Testament theology. And so when we apply this passage, we have to think about it in terms of our corporate worship. And we worship both individually... As individuals, we know the Bible teaches that worship is actually a 24-7 thing, me living my life before God. It's a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. But then corporately, we set aside time every week that we get together and worship. And and, I, and, and honestly, the, the thought of a, a Christian in the New Testament that didn't participate in corporate worship is just not in the New Testament. No such thing as one. They worship the corporately. It was just, it's just what you do. It's part of it. It's supposed to be what we do. So it's an important thing to God, and so it should be an important thing to us. And I believe as we look at this passage, here's a lot here, but there's two big ideas that I want to drive home for you this morning about worship as we just kind of look at this passage as a whole that I think we need to learn. And, and there's a lot of other things we could talk about worship, but this passage just wants us to remember these two things. First of all, that worship should be relational. It should be relational. When you take this passage as a whole, you're reminded of the relational nature of worship. We are worshiping a real person. A real being. God. It's not primarily about the songs we sing or the room we're in, the aesthetics and things of that nature. We are worshiping God and this is a relational endeavor. We are relating to someone, not simply something. Let me show you. Verse 1, verse 8, he talks about it being the house of God that they go to. And in the second part of that verse, he says you need to draw near to listen. Then in verse 2 he says, Be not rash with your mouth, let your words be few. Verse 4, When you vow to God, and then let not your mouth lead you to sin, why should God be angry? My point is, these are all relational terms. In other words, you can listen to God, so that means God speaks. You're to watch your words before God, so that means God hears. You make promises to God, and you can break promises to God, and you can sin against God with your mouth. And by the way, he says God can be angry. It's a relational endeavor. It's a relationship involved. And we have to beware of making worship merely routine and ritual. We've got routines and that's okay. And we've got rituals, so to speak, and that's okay. But when worship becomes about the routine and about the ritual, we, we, miss, a, we miss something. For instance, I read my Bible, I pray. I attend church. We sing songs. We pray. You come this morning, you listen to a sermon. We stand over here, then we sit over here. We sing this song and that song. We take up an offering. There are lots of rituals, so to speak, that we could say in our worship. But if they're not connected to God and to listening to God and interacting with God and obeying God and worshiping God, then they become hollow and routine rituals. And the point is not supposed to be in the ritual or the routine. The point is these things are supposed to get you to God. They're to usher you to God, to connect you to God, to help you to worship God. They're facilitating worship, not... Ends and of themselves. Beware this morning of treating God as merely an abstract idea. You say, I would never do that. I think we do that way more than we would care to admit. We've got to be careful not to make God abstract or to assume He's distant from us. You know, this passage shows us that while He is different from us, He is in heaven, it says, and you were on earth. He's also close enough to hear. God is both transcendent, the Bible teaches us, and knowable. That's the uniqueness of our God. He is in heaven, yet He is close enough to hear you and to speak to you. Jesus taught His followers that they are to approach God this way. Our Father. Right? That's a very relational term that Jesus tells us we're to use in talking to God. He said, Our Father who are in heaven. 
There's the relational, the closeness, and at the same time the transcendence. Nothing highlights the relational idea of God like the fact that He's a Father. But we tend to, if we're not careful, with all the stuff that we've got going on and all the routines and all the rituals in our sinful nature, if we're not careful, we will make worship about routine and about ritual and forget that it's about relationship. You know, we live in a culture right now that is just saturated with social media. And you know, social media began, I remember when Facebook started years ago and all these college students had Facebook and I was out of college and I would see people with their Facebook page and I'm like, what is this? So it's like, it's like a yearbook, but it's online, you know, it's kind of, it's, it, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, I felt like I was a hundred years old, right? And I'm looking, I'm trying to figure this. And I'm like, what about this? Don't you have MySpace? Don't you have them in there? Like, dude, you're like, you know, and that was like 10 years ago. Now MySpace is like this barren wilderness on the internet. Like, you know, you go there and like tumbleweeds blow by. It's like abandoned. Maybe Facebook will be like that one day. I don't know. But we forget these things were created. Facebook and back then MySpace and Instagram and Twitter and, and Snapchat and all these different social media platforms were created to help people connect. Right? But I've learned something. You can be super social media involved and savvy and completely disconnected from community. You can even forget real people are real people. So you would post things, right, that you would never say to someone. You'll criticize in a way that you would never do to someone's face. What have you done? You've dehumanized the Internet and the people that are on the other end of your email and of your posts and of your status update. My point is, just in the same way that we can let these good things create distance between us and people instead of connecting us to us and people, we do the same thing sometimes with a worship service when we gather together and we simply make it about the songs and we make it about the sermon and we make it about where I sit and we make it about where we stand and we make it about all the other little things in the building and chairs and all the other things which are fine things but at the end of the day, instead of us using this time to draw closer to God, we create distance. Just like many people do with social media. The point is, in individual and corporate worship, we are relating to God, or we're supposed to be. Not performing rituals simply, or simply checking off boxes of what I did today. It's about God, and He is speaking, and we are to listen. And He's not uninvolved and detached from our worship. So just as a whole, as we look at this passage, that's the first thing we should take away. Worship is to be relational. Secondly, worship should be reverent. And that is the main theme of this passage. The reverence of worship. Verse 1, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In other words, watch yourself. Be careful. Be cautious. Because this is God's house, right, that we're going to. This is the assembly of the saints where the Spirit of God is gathered with you there. Live cautiously, he's saying. Live reverently before God. It's a lifestyle. It's a pattern. Guard your steps as you go. Verse 7, he closes the passage with, God is the one you must fear. The NIV says you must stand in awe before God. What's he talking about? A reverential awe of God. Reverence. And it's the summary of the passage. Without the fear of the Lord, Without a reverential awe of God, standing in awe of God, as the NIV says, most of the rest of this passage will literally make zero sense to you. It really won't. It won't connect. Because much of what the rest of this passage is is showing us what reverence should look like before God. Let me show you. First of all, we should be reverent in our intentionality. Reverent in our intentionality. He says, draw, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. That's listening there. That word listen in the Hebrew. It means more than to hear. 
It's the idea of listening with the intent to obey. In fact, at times in the Old Testament, it's translated obey, and in times it's translated listening because they're so close together. You've heard, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's this word. So when he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, he's talking about we, there's an intentionality when we come to the house of God that we're coming with an intent, attentive ear. And biblically speaking, you haven't heard God's Word if you haven't obeyed God's Word. That's why Jesus says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Because part of listening biblically is appropriating it into our daily life. And so this intentionality should breed an expectance when we come to the house of God. It's one thing to draw near to hear, and it's another thing to listen. Those are two different things. You can hear someone and not be listening. I'm good at that sometimes. All the men said, Amen, right? We're good at that sometimes. Hopefully you came this morning, though, to hear from God. Hopefully there was an expectancy when you walked through the doors this morning that what was on your heart this morning is, I hope God speaks to me today. If not, you've drifted from the purpose behind our worship. The corporate gathering of God's people in both the Old and the New Testament contained God's Word and the reading and teaching of God's Word. When we read from God's Word, that's God's words. Sometimes we forget that. We go, oh, this is the Bible. This is God's Word. And it's God's words. They're all God's Word. It's God's words. And He has spoken to us. And so when we read from it, or we read it, and we think on it, and we teach from it, this is you say, I want to hear God speak to me. Read this book out loud. And God is speaking to you. This is how God speaks to us. This is the primary way God communicates with His people. You know, but there's a difference in hearing it, and there's a difference in listening to it. Because listening entails taking in an intentionality and obedience. You know, sometimes I'll put music on in my office while I'm reading or maybe while I'm writing or doing something. And I'll have music playing in the background, and I'm hearing it, but I very rarely listen to it, right? I mean, ten songs might go by, and I don't remember what was playing. I just wanted something in the background while I was doing whatever I was doing. Maybe you're that way. Where I go to a coffee shop, right? And you're reading or you're writing, and you put in the earbuds, and you've got whatever playing in the background. Sometimes it's just music. Sometimes there's no lyrics. Just to kind of take out the other noise, right? And maybe you're that way. But that I'm hearing it, but I'm not really listening to go, oh, that's the violin, or that's the guitar, or that. I'm just... I'm just hearing it. But sometimes I, if I'm driving down the road in my car and I want to hear a podcast or, well, that's somebody, somebody's talking and they're teaching something or they're sharing this or it's a news related or whatever it is and I'm, and I'm listening, right? I'm trying to understand what's being said and trying to take this in. It's two totally different mindsets. And we must be careful when we come to worship and open God's Word together that we do not let it become the background noise that we hear instead of the Word of God that we're listening to attentively to see what God might say to us. You didn't come today to make your grocery list. So don't do that when you're in here. You didn't come today to think through your calendar for the week. So don't do that when you're in here. Right? Those things can wait. We must be careful, right? And I, and I, can, I can say that because I, I've done things like that in church before. I've lived long enough at least to do that, right? And to get distracted. We're easily distracted. You have to fight for attention. Some try and decide if they're going to obey God after hearing what God says. So they come to church and there's no intentionality that I'm listening to obey, but it's I'm going to go hear what's said and if I like it, I'll obey, right? Or if it's not going to cost me too much, right? We're negotiating with God before God ever even speaks and we treat church like Golden Corral, right? Now if you're under 50, Golden Corral is a restaurant. (laughs) 
I took, I think Christelle, we went to a Golden Corral one time on a date. We've never been back. I was like, I've heard people talk about this place. It's great. Apparently all my friends were like my parents' age at the time. And we love Golden Corral, by the way. And, um, our parents and in-laws and those sort of things. So in Alabama, Golden Corral is like, you know, Baptist Mecca, right? <laughs> Food Mecca. And, uh, and so you can go there and you can get, Anything, right? Is anything. Some of you love Golden Crown. That's why you love it, right? And you're like, I'll have the fish today and I'll get some corn, some veg- steamed vegetables over here. And at the end, I'm going to get some chocolate pudding. Well, the chocolate pudding wasn't good. I'm going to get some lemon pie and then I'm going to have ice cream and I can do all these different things, right? And just take, it's a buffet. You just take what you want and leave what you don't like, right? And sometimes we approach God's word that way. In which, oh, there's a lot out there to choose from and I'll just take what I like. In fact, I'll just eat beef all day if I want to, right? They're shaving it off over there for me under the hot lamp. And I'll just keep eating beef and mashed potatoes and at the end eat some, and I'll just skip everything else. But God's Word's not a buffet. The worship experience is not a buffet. It's a feast. In which God does lay out for us an assorted variety of things, but He wants us to taste them all. <laughs> he wants, we need them all for our edification and for our growth and for our spiritual maturity. God wants us to be well fed and healthy. And a reverent attitude towards God should manifest itself in someone that longs to listen with the intent to obey. Intentionality towards all of God's Word. Not just what's comfortable. Let me ask you this morning. Do you come to worship with the intent to hear from God and to obey Him? If you haven't sensed God working in your life recently through the reading of His Word or through the preaching or the teaching of His Word, maybe in your heart you should pause right now in your heart, right in the middle of this sermon and say in your heart, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Maybe you should just echo those words of Samuel if you haven't sensed that in a while. If God is God and His Word is His Word, and this gathering is His people, you need to be asking things when you come in here today like, what needs to change about me today in light of God's Word? Come to worship with intentionality. But also, reverence should manifest itself not only in intentionality, but in humility. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. What's he trying to do there? He's trying to humble us. Therefore, let your words be... Few is warning us to not get in trouble with our words. Words stem from our heart. Jesus taught us that. He points to that here when He says, Not your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty. He's reminding us when we come primarily to, we come to worship primarily to listen, not to speak. It's most important more than anything that we hear from God, not so much that God hears from us. You know, Jesus warned His people, warned people in the New Testament to not babble meaningless things, repetitive things before God like the pagans, like the idolaters of their day. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8 when He taught on prayer. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't pray a lot. Jesus is confronting the fact that many of these people with their idols, they thought, boy, I can wear this idol down. If I ask Him enough times, He'll get tired and He'll give it to me. That there was so much power in them that they could somehow wear down with their many words the idol and cause it to give in. And He's saying, God's not like that. Listen, if you can wear down God with your words, if you can ask enough, that you can, if you can manipulate God with your words, Who's in the position of strength? Who's in the position of power? You are, rather than God. He's saying, no, 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 no. He's in heaven. 
You're on earth. He's exalted. He, he's God. You're man. He's sinless. You're s- sinful. He's holy and righteous. And, and we are fallen. The attitude he's aiming for here is humility as we come before God. He says his reason, the reason is we need to understand who God is and who we are. That's the, what drives humility in worship. Well, if we don't have humility when we come to the house of God, we lack proper perspective of who God is and who we are in light of that. He's not encouraging us to put on airs before God. He's not saying don't be yourself when you come before God. He's saying be humble when you come before God and you gather in worship. He don't want us to come to gather this morning with too high a view of self. Our words should be few, he says, for God is God and we are man. You know, critics think that they know everything and consumers think everything's about them, but both lack the humility to see worship is primarily not about them, but about God. Bottom line is, He wants us to recognize in our worship, in our praying, that we're dealing with God. Don't be like the fool who doesn't seem to know that, He says. They don't know that they're doing evil. He said they're they're being foolish. Commentator Ian Proven said, The sacrifice of fools, he talks about here, is thus careless observance of religion, unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul, and enacted out of custom, Peer pressure or habit. He says that's the sacrifice of fools. That's the temptation for us this morning. You know, verse 3 there, he says it's the foolish person that spouts at the mouth constantly without thought to his words. He likens it to someone who's busy at work, they're toiling away and they're just daydreaming all day, thinking other thoughts to escape, right? And he says the fool is the same way with their words in worship. They're just kind of, it's like this daydream, it's like blabbering before God, not focused on what they're doing. So, we show our reverence in our intentionality. We show our reverence in our humility. And thirdly, we show our reverence in our integrity. Verses 4-6. through six. He starts talking about vows. When you make a vow, keep a vow. Don't break your vow. See the verses there? Verses 4-6. through six. Now, the author here, he's talking about making promises to God. At times in the Old Testament, they might make a vow. It was very common as they would pray or make a sacrifice and ask God to hear their request. It was not required in the law for them to do this. However, it was required in the law that if they made a vow, that they were to keep the vow or they were sinning. Listen to what Deuteronomy says on this. This is out of the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So it wasn't commanded that they make a vow, but it was commanded that they have integrity with their vows and that they keep their vows. He warns them that if they make a vow, that they should not delay in paying the vow. He says God takes no pleasure in fools. It's another reminder that we can worship foolishly. So he says pay your vow. Then he says it's better for you to not make a vow than to make it and not pay it. In other words, it's better to say nothing to God than to lie to God. God's not to be toiled with or manipulated or tried to be used or trifled with. It says, let not your mouth lead you into sin. In other words, do, in other words, do not let your mouth write a check your heart and your life can't cover. That's exactly what he's saying. The temptation would be like this for them in that day. To make some big grand promise to God and then when it came time to pay up the promise, a messenger here is likely, I believe, someone sent from the temple to collect Right? Because you made it there very possibly publicly. 
And they come and they go, okay, well you, you prayed for this and you told the Lord that you were going to give half your grain this year or whatever to the temple. And so we're here to collect. And he says, don't say to the messenger it was a mistake. So the temptation would be to go, I didn't mean, to, did I say half? I meant 10%, 5%, whatever. I, I was, I wrote it down on the script, script, piece of paper and I know it says 5-0. I meant for it to say 5 and so I meant 5%. I know you read it. It was a mistake. Now, there was actually law in the Old Testament. If you made a mistaken vow before the Lord, there was a way to atone for that. It was still a sin, though an unintentional one. But here, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you're lying. He's saying you're pretending to try to get out of it or to pay a lesser fine. Because usually the sacrifices that they promised or the vows they promised were very costly many times. So imagine now you have someone who's made a vow to God for whatever reason in their worship experience in the Old Testament and they now have four choices before them. They can pay the vow, which is what they said they would do. They can refuse to pay the vow. They can delay in paying the vow. And he says, don't do that. Don't refuse to pay it. Don't delay in paying it. Or they can lie and claim the vow was a mistake. And he warns, you can anger God in all this and it will lead to destruction in your life. And what's at stake in all this is your integrity. Right? That you're someone who's playing games with God. You're yanking God around. You're using God. You're trying to manipulate God. You're making promises with no many times intention to keep them to try to get what you want or whatever. Or you just don't take God seriously enough. You know, bedtime at our house is quite the experience nowadays. And uh, Eden is very easy. She's one and she's easy to get to go to bed, right? She's ready by 8, 8, 15. She's ready. She's down. She's out. Now, Cannon, on the other hand, is trying to turn into a night owl at three and a half. He doesn't like to go to bed. And so when 8, 8, 15 rolls around, sometimes it's right now we're in a season where it's just, it's screaming and it's going in and it's going back and forth and in and out of the room. And, and we negotiate sometimes we find ourselves now trying to get him to, to just go to bed. So we're like, he's like, I want a glass of water. We're like, okay, but this is it, right? You promise you go to bed after you've had the glass of water? And you know, he's like, you know, Scout's Honor, you know, and he drinks the water and he gets cozy and he goes, I need mommy to sing me a song. Well, we said the water was it, you know, and so anyway, whatever you do, there's always another thing, right? He's quite the neg- driving a bargain, so to speak. But he's three, so there's not a lot of integrity with his promises. <laughs> There's no intention to keep them, only an intention to stay intention to stay awake as long as possible. But you know, we make commitments to the Lord. This is not the Old Testament, and you've you may not come in here this morning and say, Oh Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do this, right? Maybe you've done that before. But we don't we're not bartering with God. He's our Father. We make requests, but we're not making trade offs. But we do make commitments to the Lord. And we have a choice when we make a commitment to the Lord. We can obey God and follow through. We can refuse to do what we committed to do. We can delay constantly having a reason. Constantly, it's the timing, it's the season of life. Oops, I, oops, I didn't really mean to, I overcommitted to this. Lord, I didn't mean to commit to you to that or whatever. And so, when God convicts you of something and you tell the Lord something like this, I'm going to break up with him or her. Or you tell the Lord, I'm going to start giving more generously. This is the year, Lord, that I'm going to give more generously. This is the year, Lord, I'm going to be more faithful to church. This is the year, Lord, that I'm going to, you know, and we make these promises to God. Maybe you have no intention or maybe you have good intentions. Maybe you're just trying to relieve your guilt in those moments. But maybe you've gotten distracted. But the point is, do not play games with God. 
Do not make promises you don't intend to keep and do not make commitments you don't intend to keep. He's talking about the integrity of our worship because we worship before God. So beware this morning of the games people play with God. Beware of using God and trying to manipulate Him and trying to make God a means to another end. Beware of saying things to relieve guilt or try to manipulate Him. and Just don't play games with Him. Don't fail to treat God like He's God. Which is what we do many times. And in verse 7 he says, When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Tied back to verse 3 again. Once again warning us against misusing our words in worship and being foolish and making rash vows when the one thing we have to do is to fear God. As we gather this morning in worship, we know we worship a God who listens and who speaks. We worship a real God, not some abstract idea. We also know that we're to guard our steps. We come near with intentionality to listen and obey and humility knowing He's God in heaven and we are but man on earth. And we come with integrity, not here to play games, but to worship and to do whatever we say to do. As one person said, if you put your yes on the table, by all means, fulfill it. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out. Relational, reverent worship begins at the cross. He says, beware what the sacrifice of fools. That word sacrifice in this passage should remind us of what worship looked like for them in the Old Testament. No one just came to worship empty-handed. They sacrificed animals and they brought grain offerings and they had to make these offerings and they had to sacrifice animals to take away or to cover their sin. And this morning, we don't worship that way, right? No one, no one has a goat with them this morning or, or a dove or hopefully you left that at the door, right? We'll check that there. Didn't bring that this morning. Those sacrifices were pointing ahead to a better sacrifice that was yet to come that we're about to memorialize and remember as we go to the Lord's table here in just a moment. In the New Testament, we learned that Jesus came into the world as the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews tells us, couldn't take away sin. Only someone who was both man, for it is man who had sinned against God, and who is both sinless, because it had to be a sinless sacrifice, could do that. And the only man who could be sinless happened to have to also be God. Right? And so in Jesus, we have God who has become man. So in Christ, we have this God-man who came for the purpose of laying down His life as the sacrifice for our sins. And that's the cross. Jesus doing what you and I and the blood of a million animals could never do this morning. Paying our sin debt. Satisfying the wrath of God. First Peter reminds us of this. First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 19 says... If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, with reverential awe throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Christian this morning, my point is this, we don't have less reason for reverence when we gather in worship because of the cross. We have more reason for reverence when we gather to worship this morning from the foot of the cross. As Hebrews says, we come before the throne of grace boldly, but we don't come irreverently. We come boldly, but we don't come brashly. 
We don't come proudly. We come boldly, not confident in ourselves, confident in His sacrifice. Confidence that, that the debt has been paid. Confidence that it has been finished. Confident that we can come now because of what Christ has done. Boldly coming before Him, but humbly coming before Him. And reverence this morning is not about the, the clothes you chose to wear or the style of music or the look of a building. It's about our heart. It's about humility before God and listening to and obeying God and treating God like He's God, not a checklist. And treating the worship gathering like it's a worship gathering, not simply just a hangout time or a time to do other things. So during the Lord's Supper today, we take with reverence for we know the elements that we're going to pass around symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus. And we are memorializing His sacrifice. So we don't take the cup and the bread foolishly, but reverently and in awe of a God who has paid the sacrifice, He's given the sacrifice that needed to happen for us to be able to even worship appropriately. And the Lord Jesus who died for you and rose again in victory. So the first question this morning is, have you turned from your sin and embraced Christ as Lord and Savior? If you haven't done that, I want to invite you to do that even where you sit this morning. I would love to pray with you and talk with you about that, but that's the most important decision you'll make to become a worshiper of the one true God. And that happens by coming to God through Jesus by faith. If you're a believer here this morning, search your heart this morning. Are we relating to God relationally? Are we reverent before God? Is there intentionality in our worship? Is there humility in our worship? Is there integrity in our worship? If there's not, there's a lack of reverence in our worship. Is there sin to confess? Business to do with God. Let's do that during this time before we take the Lord's Supper.